Daniel. There we go. Is that better? Thank you, Chris. So, Daniel chapter 5, we are starting a new chapter this morning. If you've been um, with us the past, believe it or not, this is week 17 in Daniel. So, over the past uh, four months or so, if you've been with us, we have been working our way through Daniel. And we have been, um, Daniel so far has been centered on the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we finished him up last week, Evan did. And this morning, uh, we are moving on to a different king, King Belshazzar. And so, uh, let's do this. Let's just jump in this morning. We've got a, a good bit of ground to cover. So, we're going to read Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, or verses 1 through 12, and then back up and unpack it. Is that good? All right. So, Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar... When he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king loudly called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and of his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever, not let your thoughts uh, alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father. Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this journey through the book of Daniel. And so as we turn our attention now uh, to this passage, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, or would you illuminate your truth for us? Not by our, our wisdom, our intelligence, not by our experience, Lord. Lord, by your Spirit, would you help us to see your truth this morning? And, and ultimately, would you help us see Christ? In his name we do pray. Amen. Well, at a, at a first reading of this, I don't know if you read it this past week or if you read it recently, but when you read Daniel chapter 5, it almost just sounds like a repeat of what we've already seen in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. 
And there are a lot of similarities to be found for sure in this passage. But as you really drill down into Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see there are some substantial differences in chapter 5 and the first four chapters. Uh, Now, many of us may be familiar with Daniel chapter 5. You may be familiar with uh, the writing on the wall, the handwriting on the wall. We even have uh, kind of a saying for that, right? Can you read the writing on the wall? And that comes from Daniel chapter 5, in which it was very clear. We're going to see and understand how the king clearly saw it and was deeply affected by it. So, um, so although we were kind of familiar with this from, from childhood, uh, let's get into Daniel chapter 5 here and see what the Lord has for us. Uh, obviously, one big difference is we have a different king now. King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer. Uh, we ended last week with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you remember kind of the humiliation of the king, all these things came about that God had prophesied. Isn't it amazing how what God said came true? Do we ever see that in Scripture? Just everywhere, right? On every page. And so uh, God had... I had given Daniel this word, and this happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And we see at the end, uh, after his humiliation, we see King Nebuchadnezzar restored. Uh, We kind of see the end of that, and we see there at the end, Nebuchadnezzar praising and extolling the honor of the King of Heaven. For all of his works are right, it says there in the last verse, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that's an interesting kind of transition verse there, as it says, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that is the truth that we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's the truth that we see all through Scripture. And that's the truth that we experience today, that God humbles the proud. Um, As I had one pastor tell a a student years ago, he said, uh, either you will humble yourself or the Lord will humble you. And if you have to choose, church, let me tell you, humble yourself. Um, the Lord, as we're going to see this morning, he humbles this king in a different way than he humbles, than he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Belshazzar, and I will pronounce his name probably four different ways, and none of those will probably be right. But, and of course, Belshazzar sounds very familiar to Belshazzar, uh, who is the, uh, the Babylonian name of Daniel. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but a little bit about context, the the geopolitical context, if you will, kind of what's happening in, in, in the kingdom of Babylon, where they are, the timeline, the chronology, is not super important in the book of Daniel. And one reason we know that, because of this just major gap from Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5. He, he doesn't give us these great details of even who King Belshazzar is. Doesn't give us great detail as to Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't even tell us if Nebuchadnezzar was saved, right? If you were in community group, that was one of our questions this past week. Um, but so there, he, he's not too concerned with these, uh, with some of the details that we get in some other books of the Old Testament. But it doesn't mean some of these details are not important and we can pick up on some of these. What Daniel was particularly, what he's concerned about is to demonstrate the spiritual conflict between God, his people, and the kingdoms of men. And this is what we see all through the book of Daniel. And ultimately, as Evan reminded us last week, as we see each week about the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty over the kingdom of man and, of course, his kingdom. And so God will always be sovereign and his will will always be accomplished. And so this is Daniel's point is to kind of take a look at this spiritual conflict and not provide this detailed chronology. But 
for context's sake, because context is helpful, uh, Bel- Belshazzar here, he is not the actual son of Nebuchadnezzar. You say, wait, hold up, preacher. It says he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but the, and we see oftentimes in the Old Testament to say that someone is the, the son of or someone is the father of does not always mean their uh, direct lineage. Could be a grandfather of, could be an ancestor of. They're just saying that they're in the family of or some other very close connection. So, Belshazzar is not the actual son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, his, his dad is actually Nabonidus. And so uh, Nabonidus is someone that history knows uh, fairly well. He, for he is the last king of Babylon. Nabonidus is. You say, wait, hold up. We see that uh, Belshazzar here is the king of Babylon. And if you look historically, you won't find Belshazzar even at, listed as the last king of Babylon because he was kind of a co-king. He was like a second place, if you will. Uh, what, what had happened was, um, uh, what was his name? Nabonidus was not a very favored king in Babylon. They kind of ran him out, so to speak. And so he went and moved his kingdom's capital to a different city. And so he left his son Belshazzar in Babylon to be a co-regent. And so he was number two. Hang on to that fact. It's not completely useless. We're going to come to it in just a moment. So he was number two in command. So likely Belshazzar he was the son of Nabonidus, likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. There is some debate over that, but for the sake of this morning, uh, it's not going to affect our understanding of God's word. So just a little bit of context there. Um, we, what we do see, uh, we see that things are back to the way what we call a Babylon style. They're back to just kind of being, not kind of, they're being very just over the top, very sinful, living in the kingdom of the king and under his rule and with a king who has no regard, no thought, no submission, no worship to the one true God, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is clear that neither the king nor the people remember the Lord. All that God had done, and, uh, and during Daniel's earlier time, all he had done in chapters 1 through 4, earlier in Babylon's uh, history, if you will, about 20 to 30 years prior. There's about a 20 to 30 year gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And so things have just moved on, it seems, and they're back to the way things were. Uh, and we'll see the queen as an exception to that. One uh, philosopher says it well. He said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And I think we can attest to that even in modern history. And this is true of Belshazzar. He has not learned from the stories of the past. He has not learned from his grandfather, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. Uh, whether or not he was his grandfather, he at least knows the history of Babylon. He knows the recent history. He knows all the Lord did, and he knows uh, Nebuchadnezzar's story. But yet he did not learn from this past. And so uh, when is this taking place? We said it's about 20 to 30 years after Daniel chapter 4. But one very interesting point about when this is happening is that the events of Daniel chapter 5 here are on the eve of Babylon's destruction. On the eve of Babylon's destruction. I didn't write down the date. And believe it or not, there is a pretty uh, widely held agreement on the date of Babylon's destruction. I believe it's October 11th. 539 and you can fact check me on that and it's okay if i'm a little off but it's a long time ago we have a specific date in history and this is right before babylon falls and so uh and so we see that right there at the door are the the enemies of babylon specifically the medes and persians who are camped outside the walls are about to take over babylon so things are about to drastically change 
But yet, there's a party going on. Because you see there in Daniel 5, 1, it says, King uh, Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So it's not just a slight party. It is a major party. It's a major feast. If you remember us going through uh, the book of Esther back when they had this 180-day party. It was a big ordeal. This is one of those grandiose parties. He's, uh, thousands of his lords are there, and he is feasting in front of this great feast that he is throwing. So why would you throw a feast if your enemies are at your door? If your enemies are literally camped outside the wall, if you can hear them strategizing, if you can hear them sharpening their swords and doing all the things that they do during that time, why would you have such a feast? Uh, Some would say, as silly as it sounds, it was already on the calendar. If you live and die by your calendar, they had this scheduled feast. So live or die, boys. It's time to party tonight. It's possible. It's, in my opinion, unlikely. Some would say that it was probably even to boost the morale of the leadership. That, hey, we got the enemy out there. Uh, take heart. We're together. We're going to, you know, uh, have, a, have a party tonight, and we'll go out and fight tomorrow. But likely, and this is to seem to fit the character of Belshazzar, it is not to boost morale of the leadership, but it is to boast of Babylon's invincibility and worship their false gods. So they're boasting in their strength. They're boasting in their ability to remain safe. Yeah, they're outside. You know, King Cyrus is out there and King Darius are out there. But we're Babylon, guys. And look at our gods and look at the ones who we serve. They're not going to take us. They're not going to defeat us. And so it likely was not to boost morale, but it was to boast of their invincibility and boast of their position that we see will not last long. So that's kind of where we are. That's the state of things. Now, what is the state of Belshazzar? He is not in a very good state. He seems very drunk. King Belshazzar made this great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, that's a little more than just face value. It's not just that he stood on the balcony and he had some wine, but the language in which this is being used here and the, uh, the posture that it puts the king clearly says that he is making a spectacle of his drinking. He is making a spectacle of his drunkenness. He is clearly being de- demonstrating just his pride. This is about him. This is his kingdom. As we saw in his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, as we see often in kings, both kings of old and even kings today, we see this state of pride which the Lord is against. And which we said, and as we see in Scripture, the Lord will humble those who are prideful. So he is making a show out of his drinking. So we see on display here the same grievous sin that we see in Nebuchadnezzar, the sin of pride. The sin of, it is, his, it is everything about him. It is, it is the sin of pride that we see on display in Belshazzar. It is the sin of pride that we see on all unbelievers. Uh, the sin of pride that is the very original sin uh, committed in the cosmos. But now, uh, Belshazzar, he takes it to another level. As we see there, he's partying with his thousands of lords. He's drinking in front of everybody. But in verse 2, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
So this is a big deal, right? So they're sitting there partying, they're having this great time. He's doing all the stuff that he's doing as this kind of wild king. He says, wait, I've got a good idea. Go to the royal treasury and find all of those gold and silver uh, cups that we got from Jerusalem and bring them here. Not just so that I can drink out of them, but that I can drink and my wives can drink and my concubines can drink and the lords can drink. We can all partake in using these vessels that were intended for worship. And then they brought in the garden vessels that had, had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, they all drink from them. They drink wine and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So can you just get the, the scene that's happening here? This, this level of revelry, if you will. This, this, just, uh, this party that has gone from this prideful party of contempt now to this, this party of just heresy, this party of blasphemy, as they've taken, they've taken the very cups that were intended for worship in the temple of God, as they have, have captured the people of God so many years ago have brought them to Babylon. They brought their goods with them. They brought these, these treasures. And now they go to the royal treasury to, to take these, to drink from. Surely the royal treasury had plenty more gauntlets and cups, right? Surely they had plenty more silverware for the guests. But this is not the ones they got. Belshazzar asked specifically for these ones from Jerusalem. As one author put it, there is only one proper explanation. The Jews and their sacred vessels symbolize the presence and power of God. Belshazzar's heart was a factory of rebellion against God. So he knew he had an exact kind of cup that he wanted. And it wasn't because it was the prettiest cup. It wasn't because it was the best cup. And likely it was. These are the cups in the house of God. But that wasn't the point. He didn't ask for my favorite mug, right? We can understand that. And if you're, if you're, you know, you want my favorite mug, it wasn't that. That this represented the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, because they captured the Jewish people so many years ago. This wasn't even the most recent spoil the royal treasury had. But his heart was a factory of rebellion against God. So we see this king, King Belshazzar, who is consumed with pride. He is consumed with rebellion. He is consumed with contempt for our God. His heart was a factory of rebellion against God. And this is always the case, not just for Belshazzar, but for every human who's ever been born, ever since Adam. Embracing our pride is active rebellion against the Holy God. Embracing our pride is active rebellion against the Holy God. So this isn't just a story of Belshazzar. This isn't just the story of Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't just the story of the, the bad guys of the Bible. This is a story of our own heart, of our own sinful heart. And we too have hearts that are factories for rebellion against god belshazzar knew what he was doing he was blaspheming the god of the jews he was mocking his maker and he was likely possibly in the back of his mind even thinking about the shortness of his life i mean he knows that these kingdoms these kings are out there at his door ready to come in and destroy him and so maybe as a front he was prideful so there's no way they can get in 
But at the same, same time, maybe he was considering his mortality. And even in the midst of that, he was mocking his maker, the one true God of the universe. Go with me to Galatians real quick. It's a neighbor to Ephesians. You should have a well-worn path to Ephesians in your Bible. If you don't, stay right here a little longer and you will. Galatians chapter 6. Just a couple simple verses. Beautiful chapter in Galatians chapter 6 as we as believers learn how to live amongst one another and carry each other's burdens. In Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 gives us this reminder and warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We're going to see two men on display this morning. One is Belshazzar, who is clearly sowing according to his flesh, who is consumed with his pride, consumed with his rebellion, consumed with contempt, who is mocking his Maker. And we see Daniel, who is walking in the Spirit. Let me read you this excerpt. I normally don't read them this long, but um, Sinclair Ferguson captures this so well. I don't want to miss it. Belshazzar's sinful heart caused spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, and a pervasive sense of unreality. It was not his drunken state that caused him to lose sight of ultimate reality. He had already done so. Rich as he was and secure in his well-fortified city, he said to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Suddenly his blindness would be banished by the appearance of writing where he least expected it. His deafness would be dissipated by the voice of God's prophet telling him that on that very night his soul would be required of him. Yet he anticipated neither the judgment of God nor the judgment of others, both of which waited in the wings of the stage on which he now enjoyed the spotlight. And he quotes Proverbs eighteen twelve: Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And just to repeat that first line, his sinful heart caused spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, and a pervasive sense of unreality. That's what pride does. We think it makes us better. We think that it, it fortifies us. We think that it, it puts us in a place to win and be victorious. And this is what, Neb- this is what Belshazzar felt, and probably what Nebuchadnezzar felt as well. It's what our own heart has felt at times. But pride, a sinful heart, it causes spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, and a pervasive sense of unreality. So why can we not see with spiritual eyes? Why can we not hear with spiritual ears? Because of the consumption of pride in our heart and in our mind. A sinful heart causes spiritual blindness. A sinful heart heart causes spiritual deafness. And a spiritual heart leads to a pervasive sense of unreality. So, what is the cure 
for a stained, sinful heart. You need a Daniel in your life. No. You need Christ. Christ is the only cure for this pride that consumes. And really, He can't even fix our heart. Have you ever thought about that? Our prideful heart, our heart of unbelief can't even be fixed. He has to give us a new one. So whenever we die to ourselves and we're born again in Christ, He gives us a new heart that is not stained and sinful. And we know we still sin and we know we still struggle in this, in this life. But there will be a, a day in which we no longer do that. But He gives us a new heart. And only Christ can do that. Well, let's keep moving. So what happens? So we see, we kind of see this clear setup of what's going on. We see the, the hearts and the attitudes and mindset. We see kind of that the scene has been set. They are blasphemously drinking from these um, instruments from the, the temple. They are, to quote one famous pastor, they are living their best life in this moment. And they are about to be utterly destroyed. So in verse 5, immediately, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. So let's just unpack that just for a second. Because it says immediately, immediately this happens, things change. The party gets busted up. So they're, they're going at it, right? It's the rave of Babylon. Wicky wick. <laughs> party stops because his hand on the wall writes in something that the king cannot understand and it's very clear because not only is the party merely busted up but this human hand and why is this human hand god could have caused all kind of ways for this to come about he could have given his message in all kind of different methods but he chooses his human hand in my humble opinion, I would say it's visually shocking. <laughs> Have you ever seen just a human hand floating in the air, writing on a wall? So he is clearly grabbing the king's attention. And as a contractor, I couldn't pass this up. He writes it on plaster. And so we've been, uh, see, we, as I've been involved with it, humans have been excavating the ruins of Babylon for the past hundred years or so. And they have discovered that indeed the walls of these chambers, many of the chambers found, are covered in plaster, specifically in gypsum. If you don't know what gypsum is, it's that white stuff in sheetrock or in drywall. And so that, that is a, a natural occurring material. And that was what was on these walls. So you can imagine these white walls with this sheetrock dust all over it. And his hand shows up and writes a message that no one can understand. Would that get your attention? Well, it gets the king's attention very clearly. And not only does that enough, but he puts it right across from the lampstand. Why is that important? It's the best view in the house. So where all this light is, every, in every way that God could get his attention, he does so. So it could not be missed that he has a message for the king. God speaks. He sends this message. And we don't know yet what he's going to say. We'll look at that next week. But we see clearly that he speaks, that he reveals his message. He has a message for this king, King Belshazzar. Now we see from this text that the king, uh, that the king had a very clear and a very vivid response. 
And so some would even say that this was a vision that it didn't really happen. Well, we, we, know, it's a, we know it really happened. It was actual, that it occurred. It was not a vision. One, because Scripture says it happened. didn't say it was a vision. But also because of the reaction that we're going to see in the, in the king, it clearly was something that was in front of him. And even more than that, he invites others to look at this wall of plaster. Look at the sheetrock dust, Chaldeans, and tell me what it says. Bring in Daniel. Let him tell me what it says. This is not a vision. This is a real occurrence that God has miraculously worked for the purpose of getting a message to King Belshazzar. God is speaking differently to Belshazzar than he did to Nebuchadnezzar. Although God's word is always the same, he does make himself known in a variety of ways. And we have today, we don't need the writing on the wall. We don't need sheetrock dust on these walls and a floating hand to write messages. God has given us his perfect revelation in his word. So he, he has this message for uh, Belshazzar. And the king responded in six ways. I want us to see that just real quickly. Because it was very clear that this shook the king. It says, and the king saw, the, this is verse, end of verse 5, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And you will see that two or three other times. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And he declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he responded in six ways. His color changed. We're going to say this again uh, a couple times. He, he loses his color. Goes pale. You, we can imagine that. Maybe you've experienced that before. I won't give you the long story, but the short story that I, I like telling every now and then. We were, uh, Erica was having our first son. I was, so, I was so flustered for her. There was this procedure they were doing, and I was just so nervous. I lost my color. One of the only times in my life I lost my color, and the doctors turned their attention to me. Oh, Mr. McCartney, are you okay? You okay? Please sit down. Erica didn't care if I was okay. <laughs> she cared just about having a baby. But we know what it means to lose our color in this sense, this response of, of fear, of, of being overwhelmed. So he loses his color, and it specifically says his thoughts alarmed him. So, so he is in, internally, he is wrestling with this, and all of his thoughts are going crashing around as he sees this hand floating in the air, writing on the wall. So his colors change, his, his, uh, his thoughts alarmed him. Then I want to look briefly at this, uh, this phrase here, his limbs gave way. And maybe your translation says something similar to that, but the actual language is, that he was unknotted. And so what this means, and I don't want to be too graphic, but I don't want to, to, for this to be lost on us. And we see the, and we're going to talk about this next week because there's this play on words about being unknotted that we see here and that we see the queen give, and we see the king respond to Daniel. And so th- there's this theme of being unknotted. And what this means, and the, the way the writer is using it, is his bowels were unknotted. So as he is encountering this, this situation, he is fearful. He has lost his color. He has these internal just uh, questions. His thoughts are alarming him. And he goes to the bathroom on himself. It's the cleanest way I can put that. And so I don't know if you've ever been in that place. But that is, you know that you are in a very scary predicament. 
when this happens, especially a king in his kingdom, in his throne room with thousands of lords. He has lost all control of his body. It says his knees knocked. And then, as a king would probably not normally do, he calls out for help. He says he calls loudly for the Chaldeans, the astrologers, for the enchanters to bring them in. And they all come in, and of course, and they cannot provide an interpretation. So one last-ditch effort, kind of like his, his grandpa did. He said, well, let me, let me sweeten the pot a little bit. If you can do this, if you can find someone who can interpret this, who can understand it, interpret, give me its meaning, then I will give you a reward. And this is why he says, you'll be the third in the kingdom. Because you can't be the second in the kingdom, because that's him. His dad, Nabonidus, is number one. He's number two. So he says, I'll give you the third position in the kingdom of Babylon. And so he was desperate. He was fearful. He was scared. He was broken. And all of this from God writing on the wall. God knew how to get his attention. And of course, uh, none of these wise men, none of these enchanters, none of these Chaldeans, astrologers, none of the king's men could read the writing on the wall, much less interpret it. And it's a good reminder for us today that spiritual matters cannot be discerned by worldly means. Let me say that again, church. Spiritual matters cannot be discerned by worldly means. And at times, we may even be guilty of that. We have matters of, of a spiritual nature, which you could say everything in our life is spiritual. Everything we deal with is spiritual because all of it is, is the Lord is the only one who can lead us and guide us. But spiritual matters cannot be discerned by worldly means. And so we see this uh, come face to face here with Belshazzar and his men. And then he was alarmed again. So he, he, give, he gives this decree, gives this, this, um, um, this sweetens a pot, if you will, says, I'll make you the third in the kingdom. I'll uh, put a purple cloth around it. I'll give you a gold chain. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And so they, they make an attempt, and they try. No one can figure this out. So now he's even in a further state of, uh, of dismay that none of my men, none of these great astrologers can do any of this. They can't figure this out because he does not know that spiritual matters cannot be discerned by worldly means. And so here he is in his helpless and hopeless state. And the fact that a supernatural message was just written uh, by a floating hand on the wall, it can't just be shrugged off. Huh? Y'all can't get it? Oh, well, let's, back to go, let's go back to partying. Fill us some more drinks. It couldn't just be shrugged off. He was bothered again. He, his color changed again. And everyone was perplexed. What are they to do? Now enter a very interesting character in the story, the queen. The queen, in verse 10, the queen, and some translations may say the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and she declared, we'll get to in just a moment. So who is this queen? This is not Belshazzar's wife. We see already that all of his wives and all of his concubines, they're at the party. So this is not his wife. 
Uh, it is maybe his mother. Some say it is possibly his stepmother. And some say even his grandmother, uh, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're not entirely for sure who she is. I personally like to connect her to Nebuchadnezzar for reasons that we'll see here in just a moment. But her relationship to the king is far less important than her response to the king. So exactly how she's related, she is definitely some mother figure to him, as the language says, is queen mother. So it's, it's, it's less important about who she is and more important about what she says. So here's what we know about the queen. Let's continue reading. The queen mother, because the words of the king and of his lords came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods and the days of your father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So we know a handful of things about this queen mother. We know the one that she wasn't at this blasphemous banquet. She wasn't in the banqueting hall. She didn't come in until she heard the commotion. She heard the king hollering. She heard all this ruckus and heard all these things going in. So she runs in there. So she is not a part of this banquet that is clearly one that is not honoring the Lord. So she wasn't there. Number two, uh, we see that she knows how to address the king. It doesn't seem that she has a lot of affinity for this king, whether it's her son or grandson or stepson. But she says, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. And so she addresses him in a proper way. As one uh, famous line says, the uh, woman might not be the head, but she's the neck. She tells the head where to turn. And so she knows how to influence the king. She knows how to influence the head of this kingdom. But she also subtly called out the king. As, as, as you can see there in verse 11, towards the end of verse 11, she said, The wisdom of the gods were found in him. And like King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I mean, do you hear that kind of echoing? You know, your dad did something. And of course, well, your grandpa or you know, whoever he is to him. But King Nebuchadnezzar, your, your guy did this. And he's your dad. He's your grandfather. He's your whatever. And so you could see that he was doing something in a certain way that was good, and you've not been doing this, Belshazzar. So she knew how to not only address him, but to also how to call him out. And it's clear that she knew Daniel. And this is what's interesting to me. It seems like everyone else has forgotten Daniel, right? They're having a party. They're, they're doing all the things they're doing. They're living their best life. And, um, and likely not just tonight. Likely life is going on in Babylon under Belshazzar's rule. And Nabonidus is rule, and Daniel's not anywhere to be seen. It doesn't seem like he's the chief, uh, the, the chief role that he was. So he's this old man that's just kind of set to the side, but the queen still remembers him very well. And so she calls Daniel for. So she knew Daniel. And not only did she know Daniel, this is very interesting, it's very subtle, but she called him by Daniel and not Belshazzar. It says, this is Daniel, 
whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. Now what's the significance of that? If you remember, Daniel was his Hebrew name. It was the name attached to, to his God. It was the, the name attached to his people, and not this name given to him in exile and captivity under Babylonian rule. And so that there, this, this queen is very interesting to me. She knows who Daniel is, and she calls him by his Hebrew name. And she seems to remember fondly how God worked in Daniel so many years ago. And you can read through that list again, all these things that she recognizes. There's a man in your kingdom who the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the, uh, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Now, we, we can't know for certain exactly the condition of her heart and she had turned to the Lord and she had trusted the Lord somehow, or maybe even through Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. We don't know. But there seems to be some strong evidence here that, um, that she was in a good spot. and that she, was, she was remembering Daniel, remembering the work of the Lord well. So the, the description of Daniel points us to two things. We need to get to this quickly. And the queen's description of Daniel points us to two things. One is this, Daniel's faithful ministry. Daniel's faithful ministry. We don't like making heroes uh, of men and women in our text because they aren't the heroes. We know the hero of every text and every, every scripture on every page of the Bible uh, is Christ. Uh, your books came out this week, and just a reminder, uh, my good friend Jared Fix uh, said uh, infamously years ago, people like to look at the Bible as a yearbook. They want to open it up and see their self in every story. You, know, you be a Daniel. Daniel is like me. Well, more likely you're more like Belshazzar than you are Daniel. So we'd like to find ourselves in here, but we need to stop looking for ourselves. We need to stop looking at others as the heroes. We need to start looking for Jesus. But at the same time, let's not overlook Daniel's faithful ministry. He had been in exile now for so many decades. He had been there for so long, been forgotten about that it seems, but he is still faithful to the Lord, as we'll see, especially next week as he comes back into the light. He's still there. He's still known by his walk. He's still known by the Spirit of God that dwells inside of him. He is still actively in the Lord's work. You could say he's still doing ministry at this late hour in his life. And after. And again, not just he lived a long, fruitful life in Jerusalem, serving the Lord with his people. He's been in exile this whole time. And so it's just a good reminder to see Daniel's faithful ministry. And we know that Daniel was faithful in his ministry. Daniel was faithful in service because he looked to the Lord. It was the Lord who gave him strength. It was the Lord who gave him ability. It was the Lord who sustained him. We can't be faithful in ministry. And ministry just in a vocational sense. That's not just a word just for your elders here. All of us are called to be ministers. All of us are active in ministry as we strive to be ministers of the gospel. And the only way we can stay active in that and faithful in that and endure to the end, because so many we see don't endure to the end, is by the strength of the Lord. It's also a good reminder that we can retire from secular vocations and we should retire from our secular vocations, but faithful servants never cease serving their saviors. Faithful servants never cease from serving their savior. You never retire from being a believer. Never retire from ministry. Okay, I've lived my time. Now, let's let these younger folks do it. We are always engaged. Now, ministry is going to change. It's going to look different as we grow older, as we get in different seasons of life. But may we never cease serving Christ. 
Let us always continue to be about our Father's business. So, our description on Daniel points us to those two things. Well, the first one is Daniel's faithful ministry. And secondly, to Christ's faithful ministry. It reminds us and points us to Christ's faithful ministry. Go to me with it, to Isaiah chapter 11. We were in this very passage just a few weeks ago about the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. But again, just a couple of verses here. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. The way that the queen mother here describes Daniel is similar, is reminiscent, if you will, of how the Messiah is described here in Isaiah chapter 11. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit will be active in him like it was Daniel. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding like Daniel had. The Spirit of counsel and might like Daniel had. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And it goes on to give a wonderful account of the Messiah. And so ultimately what we see in Daniel chapter 5 is not for us to look and behold at Daniel, but to look at Christ and to see that he is the one who ultimately has the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, that he is the one who has the Spirit of God inside of him, who is one who, brought, who gave us the Spirit, who promised us the Spirit, that he is the one who is able to interpret all of life for us. He is the one who's able to solve the problems that we face. And God is gracious. He gives us all kind of counsel in our life, counsel from our fellow believers, counsel from our elders, counsel from uh, our family, counsel from all kind of people, not counsel from Google. Don't go there. But ultimately, the great counselor is not the elders of your church. The great counselor is Christ himself and the Spirit of God. And so we see this, this reminder and this this picture of Christ's faithful ministry. We don't need more Daniels. We need Christ. Because Daniel is dead. Daniel is gone. But Christ, as we celebrated two weeks ago, He is alive. He resurrected. And He sits on the throne today. Sits at the right hand of the Father. And He sits on the throne of the hearts of His people. And so when we look to Christ, as we have our struggles, as we have our problems, as we have our issues, may we look to Jesus. We don't need more Daniels. We need Christ. So there are a lot of similarities in Nebuchadnezzar and the story of Belshazzar, but there's also a difference. God seems to be and was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw all four chapters unfold of how he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. But with Belshazzar, there's one chapter. We're going to start it this week and finish it next week. But his, he was quick with Belshazzar. So it's a reminder to let us never presume on how God is going to work in someone. Let us never presume to how God is going to work in someone. We can have a good conversation. We've had good conversations on whether or not Nebuchadnezzar truly turned to the Lord in faith uh, before he died. I don't think there's a conversation to be had for Belshazzar in that case. Because he brought his swift judgment upon this last king of Babylon. And God is perfectly right in handing down swift judgment and certain judgment on whomever he pleases. And he does so on all who do not look to him in faith and repentance and trust in the name of Christ. 
Today is that day of repentance. Do not trust in tomorrow, for tomorrow may never come. We'll continue this story next week. Let's pray. I want to thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to turn to your word. I thank you for this account that we have in Daniel chapter 5. May it be a reminder to us this morning of so many truths. So help us to see that this morning, Lord, and to not just to leave this place unaffected, but to think on your word. And by your spirit, would you bring that application to our hearts and to our minds and to our life. And we thank you for Christ. And so his